Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 77 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. We have another very special exclusive discussion to bring you for the next 30 minutes as Meta, the technology giant that owns Facebook and WhatsApp and many others, goes public with its unique approach to ensuring side A DNO through its own Hawaii domiciled captive. Regular listeners will be familiar with Janae's Markland, Director of Business Risk and Insurance at Meta, who has previously been on the pod discussing setting up their captive in 2020 to reinsure international employee benefits. In that first episode together, we did actually joke at the end that we were sure Meta would find plenty more viable uses for the captive now it had gone live and it would appear that things have really only escalated pretty quickly in that regard. Now, there's lots of additional background I could probably give you, but Janae's and our guests who I'll introduce in a second do a really good job in explaining all of that throughout our 30-minute discussion. Janae's and I are joined by Laurie Floresca, a specialist DNO broker with Woodruff Sawyer, and Nick Troxell, manager of Global Captive Fronting at Alliance Global Corporate and Specialty, AGCS. And they're going to explain in their own words that the laser DIC side A policy that they have put in place for Meta to take advantage of recent law changes in Delaware, but now expressly allow corporates to purchase DNO liability insurance from their captive. So thank you in advance to Janae's Laurie and Nick, and please do enjoy this episode. So Laurie, perhaps a good place to start is, could you outline for us what the current state of the DNO market is today? Because it's obviously been a pretty turbulent place, a pretty turbulent environment for, for a couple of years now. But it sounds like maybe we've we've seen a bit of stabilization. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's right. You know, and it's it's not a surprise. That is a pretty typical cycle for for hard and soft insurance markets. You know, when we see carriers pull back and prices go up for over a short period of time, as we saw in 2019, 2020, especially, that drove prices up drove capacity down in a lot of segments. And then what normally happens is reinsurers take a look at the new prices and, and the concessions that primary insurers are starting to get, and they start to, to back the market again. And so starting in late 21, but especially in 22, we've seen a lot of new capacity come into the market. But what has been really interesting this year is that the market softened much faster than it normally would because there was a lack of demand with no new IPOs, basically. You know, the IPO market shut down early early in 2022. And that left a lot of carriers who had really rushed into this market, especially because uh, newly public companies were paying really high rates to get insurance in 2020 and 21. And then that business sort of evaporated. So insurers started competing with each other to compete on existing mature public companies. And that's really helped the rate pressure we've seen. Uh, And most companies now are seeing decreases in their renewal pricing in in 2022. and, And we expect to see that continuing on in 23. There is still a lot of variation in what companies pay for DNO insurance. And, you know, those recent IPOs that went public in the last couple of years are seeing much bigger decreases than mature public companies that, that didn't see quite as much of an upswing in the in the hard market cycle. So, Janae's, let, let's get kind of the meat of the discussion that we're on here to discuss today, which is about this kind of side A captive DNO structure. Let's rewind the clock a little bit. Why were a group of Delaware corporates keen to see amendments made to the, the state's corporate code to expressly allow captives to ensure side A of DNO? 
So yes, back in 2020, it was a much different story. <laughs> so the DNO market was pretty tough for a lot of insureds and companies that buy large limits had very little negotiating power. And that put us in a potentially tough position from a coverage sustainability perspective. We had moments in our renewal that we weren't certain we were going to get the coverage that we needed. And that made everyone extremely nervous. The last thing I wanted to do as new to Meta person was go to our board and say, yeah, sorry, I tried really hard, but yeah, you're not going to have the DNO insurance you once had. A bad, bad look. So um, we at Meta started looking for alternatives. We were actually able to secure the full limit that we were looking for in that year, but it was, you know, by the skin of our teeth. Yeah. Um, so we started looking for alternatives, and in our search, we found other states that were allowing companies more flexibility in how they provided the financial risk transfer to their D's and O's, and that flexibility extended uh, beyond commercial insurance. So of course, we got to thinking, well, if it can be done in other states, then why not in Delaware? And that's when we started reaching out to other insurers who might be interested in seeing this change. We're in a sort of similar position with respect to difficulties in the market or just wanting some alternatives, and we started to engage in that process of creating options for companies domiciled in Delaware. The reason really is that the vast majority of public companies are incorporated in Delaware. So, you know, you hear us in the DNO world talking about Delaware law all the time. It is foundational to how a lot of public companies operate their governance structures. And the particular knit here that we're talking about is that in Delaware, for a long, long time, the law has said that companies are not allowed to use their own assets, balance sheet assets, to indemnify directors for the settlement of derivative lawsuits. And that's a very particular type of lawsuit that's filed in state court against a board by the shareholders, but on behalf of the company. So in a normal shareholder class action lawsuit, which is really the severity exposure that most public companies worry about from a DNO perspective, in a securities class action, the proceeds of that lawsuit are intended to go back to the shareholders. You wronged me, the stock price fell, and I want that difference in stock price returned to me because you failed to manage the company. And those are pretty routine cases. We see a couple hundred of those a year. They're very well understood in the market. You know, certainly like anything over time, we've seen inflation in those settlement values, but they're they're fairly well understood by Dino insurers and by public companies. And so a lot of public companies over time, especially as they get big balance sheets, had chosen to self-insure that securities class action exposure. And so you could do that, but you always still bought A-side insurance because that other type of lawsuit, those derivative lawsuits could not be covered by the company. And so you needed that A-side insurance as a backstop. It didn't used to be a very big deal. These derivative lawsuits typically were filed sort of as sidecar or tag-along actions to securities class actions. And that was a small settlement, kind of a rounding error on the big number. And, and often just some changes in corporate governance is what they would eke out of the company, plus a, a hefty fee for the plaintiff's attorneys. Well, in recent years, the plaintiff's bar has really started to figure out this derivative machine. And, and they've started to come after big companies, especially with big balance sheets for large derivative, we call them event-driven cases where there's something that happens that costs the company a lot of money, a big fine or a, you know, a fire or a consumer safety issue. And then the plaintiffs say, well, you failed to oversee the company properly and that cost us a bunch of money. And as a result, we want you to, to repay the company. Well, in, and in Delaware, where most public companies are, they couldn't settle that lawsuit on their own. So they had to buy A-side insurance or they had to use their A-side insurance that they were already buying. So A-side insurance, which used to be very, very cheap because it was really driven about bankruptcy risk. If the company's balance sheet wasn't there to fund the securities class action settlement, that's when the A-side would kick in. But now these big derivative settlements, we were seeing 
very large towers of insurance hit with uh, paying these losses, and that caused rates to spike up dramatically uh, for for especially for large companies. Yeah, really interesting. And thanks for all that context, Laurie. I think that's really interesting. I think it's also important to know, and Janae's kind of referenced it uh, earlier, that Delaware weren't the first and they're not the only state that allows side A or parts of side A to be insured for a captive. So Laurie, have you heard from other corporates HQ'd elsewhere around the country exploring this option or looking for other alternatives? The example that people cite most often is Microsoft. They're incorporated in Washington and they stopped purchasing DNO insurance decades ago. And that's been well known in the market. Um, you can document it through their public filings that date back decades. Because they're incorporated in Washington, which does permit companies to use their own assets to settle derivative litigation, they actually set up a trust structure that allows their directors to have some certainty that there are assets segregated for them, but that could be used to settle um, any type of litigation, derivative or securities class action. And that's the most common example that, that we know of in, in the market historically. Yeah, so thanks. I'll also jump in there for a second. There are companies domiciled in a handful of other states, such as California, Colorado, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and others that are permitted to provide side A in a captive. I do know of one New Jersey company that has done it, but we are the first Delaware company to put any side A into their captive. Yeah, Janae, you're correct. There is another company incorporated in the state of New Jersey who actually has had side A in their captive, I think, since, since around the 80s. But what I, what I found very interesting is that company, while they've been doing it a long time, with the changes of Delaware, they've re-engaged with their insurance partners and other risk managers like yourself to just kind of see what's going on in this space with all the energy around the change in Delaware. Yeah, I, I definitely get that impression. Even I was in, in Luxembourg last week, more with the European corporate environment, and they're obviously very intrigued when they're looking at their own DNO. The d- change in Delaware probably don't directly impact them. But I think you're right that this whole topic and th- that law change in Delaware and some of the noise around it has created a lot more debate on this on this topic. So everyone's fascinated to see what different people are doing. And on that note, I guess, Janae's can you give us a bit more detail on how Meta have kind of structured the DNO through the captive? Yeah. I, I, well, on a side note, I really love the fact that there are folks in Luxembourg that are talking about this. That makes me feel really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we were pretty intentional about making sure our directors and officers would receive equivalent protection to commercial coverage. So no matter what we did with our captive, they were going to get exactly the same coverage that they had previous to us using it. The message was that it just would be structured a little differently. So the new rule in Delaware allows captives to cover nearly all exposures that are normally covered, but there are a few exclusions for a couple of very remote edge cases. So to fulfill our objective of equivalent protection, we had to buy something our Woodruff Sawyer partners like Lori have coined Laser DIC, a commercial product <laughs> to fill in those teeny tiny gaps created by Delaware's exclusion language. I will jump in here and admit that I did come up with that name, um, and I have received some Austin Powers jokes and references as I've <laughs> sold this to insurers. But uh, we really think that it accurately reflects the way the policy provides very specific coverage just for those differences. And what we meant by that is, you know, the commercial insurance market had a very standard a side product that companies like Meta were buying. And it's very important to directors to know that they have the equivalent coverage that their peers do. So we didn't want a Delaware company to adopt the solution and then have the board realize that they had 
less coverage than they had when they were buying in the commercial market. And there were very small differences really just in the form of the Delaware legislature mandated that the captive insurance policy have a fraud exclusion. And the form of that fraud exclusion was not quite as favorable as what we see in the commercial market. So that was one of the the key elements that we wanted to, to match. And then the second piece would just be financial insolvency, you know, just as a, a big, well-capitalized corporate can can go bankrupt, not all captives survive. I'm sure in, in your guys' world, you know how to structure them so that that rarely, very rarely happens. But a director still wants that backup assurance that there are additional assets there behind the captive. Yeah. And we were just lucky to have a lot of creative partners, including Nick here on this call, <laughs> who were willing to write that laser DIC for us in July last year. And that made it possible for us to, to make this happen for our company. Yeah, no, it was, it was great to partner with Meta directly and their broker. And that's the key point here. And, and with all of us represented on the call here, you, you have to have collaboration across across all three of those groups and be very open-minded to these conversations. But at the end of the day, like Janae said, to make sure that there's like coverage for their, their Ds and Os, even with utilizing the captive. Yeah, and that, that collaboration comes through and is obviously key any kind of structure like this. And Janae's, I think you've touched on it, but you know, despite the additional flexibility that the De- Delaware Corporate Code amendments have given captive owners such as yourself, what, what are the kind of the challenges you've encountered structuring captive policies to, to meet all the legal and, and coverage requirements? So the the challenges were, I guess, first of all, um, making sure that we were providing that equivalent protection to our directors and officers. And Laurie and the Woodruff team went through our policies with a fine tooth comb, like every word was scrutinized. And then we also had outside counsel review and make sure that they knew exactly what the captive could and could not do. And that's when the laser DIC product was born to address those gaps that we, we knew for certain that we couldn't cover in the captive. And I would say the next set of challenges were related to awareness and understanding internally and with our captive regulator. The good news is, is that we started the process extremely early. So when it time came time to pull the cord, we had internal alignment on the strategy and execution plan. Uh, Hawaii understood what we were trying to do and were supportive and we were able to make it happen. Yeah. And from my perspective, it was convincing the market to support this laser DIC product, of course. And in reality, it's just a sliver of what they're already covering in a commercial A-side product. So once we sat down with insurers and, and talked to the product, they get it. The real trick is getting them to price it accordingly, because our argument is this is such a remote case that this laser insurance would ever be triggered, that it needs to be priced at a very small fraction of what commercial A-side insurance is at. And so that's been our biggest challenge is, is getting to the right pricing. And that right pricing is going to be different for every client because the traditional DNO is priced according to the risk profile of, of that specific company. The laser then would be some relation to, to that original pricing. And then just from the Allianz perspective, I'd say from policy wording, we can be adaptable. Um, you know, we could utilize the laser DIC product that Woodruff has. We also have our own wording experts because, again, not all side A policies have the same type of language. So there could be some manuscripting needed so, so we can follow along. And we just know at the end of the day, providing that equal equivalent coverage through the captive is necessary for to make this solution work. And so, uh, Laurie, in terms of the, in terms of a bit more technical detail and, and what the DI, laser DIC captive policy structure looks like, why do you think that's the the right solution? Maybe not in all cases, but in certain cases. Well, I think it's going to be a solution for a, a very specific set of companies. It's fairly niche. It's companies have to have a very healthy balance sheet and and probably already want to be self insuring everything possible. Or companies that can't get DNO insurance from the commercial markets at at any reasonable price or at any price. 
but ultimately the decision to use a captive is a risk financing decision. So, you know, where to put it in your stack, what's the best way to, to optimize for that pricing is going to be very specific to a company. You know, in Meta's case, we started with a small piece of the program with plans to expand it over time. That's also partly driven by the need to socialize the laser DIC product and it's appropriate pricing in the market. But there are other you know, ways to think about, you know, if you're still buying traditional BC insurance, would you want to put that in your captive? Captives have not historically been used for DNO insurance very often. The type of claims we see in, in the DNO world maybe don't lend themselves to, to kind of the captive methodology in, in reserving and, and, and planning for claims. So, you know, that'll be a different analysis for each company as to whether they want to go big on the captive strategy or just have it as a, as a backup. Um, or to provide some incremental coverage for the directors. Lori, just to expand on your comment a little bit earlier, it is is really that risk financing strategy of the company and their utilization of the captive. And there's really a number of ways to bring the captive in, like Meta did, where you know there's a sliver of cover being put into the captive. Others might want to go a little bit more all in and do a ground up cover. You need to also consider if you have local policy needs, right? So potentially you'll need a fronting provider to issue those the global policy and the locals that tie in. Some companies are actually looking at keeping their commercial DNO program the way it is and just adding capacity to the top through utilizing the captive at a, at a lower cost and rate. So it goes back to your strategy of risk financing uh, at, at the end of the day. So from my perspective here at Meta, we are doing everything with the idea of long-term coverage sustainability in mind and having the option for the captive is really important for that. Regardless of the current market conditions, we know that those kind of change over time and we just want the ability to to have control over our DNO destiny. Yeah, of course. I think that's probably a lot of corporations' goal. Nick, in terms of you touched on what some of those other solutions are in terms of maybe just a captive providing additional capacity at the top, do you think there seems like there are a basket of options out there, right, for more ways that corporates can use kind of a, a captive-centric approach to DNA. Yeah, exactly. There, there are a number of ways. And I think that's what's great about a captive, right, is that, that you it does provide you those options. And you're really only limited by your creativity and the and the partners that you have to, to kind of work with you. But these are the solutions that we've considered here at Allianz. And, but I don't think you should be limited by those and be creative and, and uh, try to develop a solution that fits the needs of your captive and your company. I agree. I think, you know, there are a lot of ways you can structure this. I think I would just caution companies that it's worth taking the time to do it right and and make sure your directors understand what you're proposing. For example, the laser DIC product is probably not required and some companies may choose to forego it. But as a risk manager, I think you'll want to make sure that your board understands that there are some differences between what is in the commercial market and the captive is allowed to cover. And today's then in terms of making this structure work for you guys, like what support are insureds and, and captives looking for and needing from the commercial market? It sounds like you've got a willing partner here in, in Allianz, but has, has the commercial market been kind of forthcoming? Is it hard to find that laser DIC capacity and that supporting capacity? Yeah, so Allianz has been amazing. Thank you, Nick, for driving that internally there uh, at your company. We've had some great discussions. The capacity is building, and we couldn't be more excited about both the opportunity and the folks that we've been able to bring to the table that are also interested. That's been going really well. We have had uh, 13 insurers currently offering small lines, and we hope to grow those over time. We are looking for the most laser DIC we can generate in the market so that we do have that flexibility and options. Yeah. So we are looking for new laser DIC capacity from our encounter and from new markets. We will also like to see a more rational approach to pricing, as Lori mentioned. 
the risk is extremely low. It's a very, very much an outlier case. Um, so we, we hope that eventually the price will come down as more insurers get comfortable with this very low risk. Yeah, I agree with, with Janae's there. You know, Dino insurers in the regular commercial world typically provide fairly small lines, uh, you know, usually 10 million, maybe a max of 25. And even there, they're usually ventilating that throughout a tower. The carriers that do offer big blocks of capacity typically demand a higher price to do so. So this is, you know, a little bit of an interesting pitch. We want big blocks of capacity at a very low price, but the risk is really, really small, as Janae said. So it just requires a lot of market education and socialization of, of this product. You know, and I'd note that you know, Janae's mentioned 13. That's just in the initial launch of the laser DIC portion of the tower. Meta has many market participants in the rest of their commercial tower. And I was really excited that we got 13 insurers to come to the table on fairly short notice this spring after after the law passed in Delaware. So I think it was a really great start. And we're already having great conversations with other insurers and with those same group about expanding it as we grow this program in future years. So I guess the, the big, I won't say million dollar question, because it's probably a lot bigger <laughs> dollar question than that, Janice. But I guess, I guess the big question is, how do you ensure that the D's and O's are comfortable with the coverage, with this coverage being provided by a captive, your captive, and are there any kind of additional safeguards needed to be put in place? I know that some of the Delaware law talks about independent kind of claims management. So yeah, how do you get people comfortable with that to make sure everyone's on board? Yeah, so we've we actually started talking to our board, I think back in 2018, as the market started to turn and just to raise the issue that look, the market might get a little bit more difficult and we're going to have to start thinking about options. So that the seed was planted way back then. And then we had several conversations between that time and the present, which is when we first put our DIC in and our side A into our captive this this last renewal. So when the option became available, the discussion was really straightforward. We were able to provide comfort that they were getting that equivalent protection to what they had with commercial insurance, albeit structured a little differently. And that was the most important message to land. As for the guardrails, we talked a bit earlier about the edge cases that could not be covered by the captive. Those things include final adjudications of fraud or knowing violations of the law. And there were also requirements for claims handling. The law requires claims decisions need to be made by one of four bodies, an independent committee of disinterested board members, and that's commonly how it's done now, a third-party administrator, outside counsel, or a shareholder vote. So we spent a lot of time with our friends in the law department talking about the ins and outs of the coverage and the claims management process until everyone was comfortable with what we had and what it required as we started to implement this new solution. The other thing I'd say directors should really pay attention to is capital requirements for the captive. You know, when Delaware passed this, they could have gone further and, and did what Washington State did, for example, and just allow any assets to be used, any balance sheet assets to, to settle derivative matters. But they specifically put a captive in. And, and I suspect that the reason they did that is to have that regulatory oversight of third parties that that would need to monitor the, the assets of a captive. But the reality is, you know, we talked about earlier, DNO has not been very commonly placed in captives. So I suspect that captive regulators are not going to be very experienced in assessing DNO claims or judging whether companies are reserving properly. So I think that's an important piece of this that is, is really going to be left to the companies. And there's a lot of subjectivity in that. The captive itself would be bankruptcy remote, but directors will want to make sure that the captive will have the assets to pay the claim when the time comes. And in DNO, that can be five to eight years from the time it is filed or sometimes even longer. I just um, saw a case get settled that was like 13 years old. 
So if the parent company is is no longer around at that time, then the captive assets are the only thing the directors would have to rely on if they you know didn't have that commercial insurance, such as the laser DIC backstop. So that's what we think that last piece is is important, and it's also about tying up those assets over over a long time. And then claims reserving is going to be a key piece of that because. It's going to be difficult to value those claims when they're first filed. And so deciding, do we need to put additional capital into the captive? When, at what at what inflection points does it look like that case might settle? That's going to be a, a big part of, of the analysis. As long as the captive is well-funded, it really helps us argue that the laser DIC premium should be very low. So, you know, there's also a, a tension there that, that we'll be talking to insurers about the captive and its strength in order to get a very aggressive price on the the supporting product. Yeah, and that bankruptcy remote point, Laurie, is, is is really important, I think, to get across to people. And, and I think people outside the captive industry don't always quite get this, but there's actually quite a few good you know, examples and precedents where there have been captive parents go bankrupt. The big famous one is Enron, uh, and the captive was kept running and paying claims, paying long tail claims, things like workers' compensation claims. And the and the Vermont regulator in that case did get a hold of it and stopped anyone from taking money out of it, but shouldn't be taking money out of it. So, and there's been other examples in Europe as well. So, I think it's a really important point to make and get across to people, and particularly on this topic, Nick. It sounds from what we've been discussing here, that Allianz aren't fronting the, this, this meta policy. So is there a role for, for fronting partners in these structures specifically? And, and why might they be used or why might they not be used? Yeah, no, good question. And I, I think you're correct. There's no fronting currently with meta, but I think uh, it goes back to conversation we had kind of earlier where we discussed the captives risk financing strategies and how they really are going to deploy their capacity and their captive. For captive owners that have a global footprint, local policy needs, I think fronties is kind of essential to it if they're going to utilize their captive from the ground up, right? Allianz can provide coverage certainty around the globe, issue policies, seed premium back to the captive where it can and the appropriate coverages through uh, a unique reinsurance agreement. But there are situations where you know, a fronting partner might not be needed or might not be ideal. And I think those are where uh, the captive will take pieces of the DNO tower maybe up higher where they don't need uh, the captive front. Great. And in terms of the, the captive regulators, Janae's on this topic, as again, it's, you know, it's relatively new, as we've been discussing in terms of this approach. I know from some conversations I had earlier this year, when this Delaware law first came out, that the South Carolina and Vermont regulators both told me on the podcast, in fact, that they would be open to discussing it, certainly with, with their captors that are domiciled there. What kind of how receptive have the captive regulators you've spoken to been about this DIC structure being implemented? So our captive is domiciled in Hawaii, and they have a reputation for being open-minded, fair, and careful. And these are all things we appreciate. So initially, as you can imagine, our proposal was met with curiosity. <laughs> what is this new side A DIC coverage that you want to put into your yeah. captive? It hadn't been done before, so they're just cautious and wanted to understand. So we spent quite a bit of time talking to them about how we plan to structure it, what we plan to do in terms of reserving, and how we thought about that. And then being good risk managers, <laughs> we also reached out to Vermont just in case Hawaii said, no. <laughs> so, yep. you know, as you mentioned, open to having the discussion, which we thought was really positive. It was well known that side A coverage for non-indemnifiable losses couldn't be in a captive. So the, the reticence that Hawaii first exhibited was pretty understandable. <laughs> so the Department of Insurance wanted to understand what had recently changed 
why the coverage did not have to be placed in a Delaware captive was also a, uh, a conversation that we had. And then we shared extensive due diligence that we performed to get ourselves comfortable with the new options. So we were pretty open about sharing our coverage analysis that both Woodruff and our outside counsel did and sharing with them how we had communicated with the board so that they fully understood what we were planning to do. And so after a few conversations, we were able to get the business plan change that we needed and start executing on our captive strategy for DNL. And so today is one thing we haven't mentioned already actually is that you you changed the type of captive, didn't you? It was pure it was a single parent pure captive previously. It's now a, a PCC captive, is that correct? And that was for this this structure? Yeah, that was that's absolutely correct. So we had a captive earlier and we were putting our traditional captive business into it. But when we started thinking about DNO, we wanted to make sure that we were being very cautious with the assets that were dedicated to DNO coverage. And so creating those two cells that were separate, one for DNO and then one for everything else, provided an additional layer of comfort to our DSNOs that if in fact a claim did need to be paid, that those assets were there, ready to be deployed and were for them only. <laughs> so that was an important consideration yeah. for us. And we did that structurally. Yeah, I think another really, uh, really interesting part of this. So, Laurie, how about yourselves and yourself and Nick in terms of conversations you've heard had or heard about with other regulators? Yeah, we we initially um, right after the law was passed engaged with with Delaware's regulator. You know, even though the law didn't require it, we expected that a lot of companies would be curious about whether there would be some advantages of having the the captive in Delaware, and and so definitely the the regulator there views it as a business opportunity and is open to considering the structure there. And, and here at Allianz, you know, we have been talking with other captive owners about the option of utilizing their captive, but area of domicile is important. You know, if you're the first to bring it to your state, you could expect a longer time frame. If you're in Hawaii, you know, Meta's already blazed that trail for a captive owner. So, you know, the next one coming through should be a little bit more efficient of a process since they've been educated. But just make sure you have set aside a good amount of time to engage your captive regulator if you're the first. And I would also add to that, if your captive regulator doesn't ask some questions or just waves it through without asking any questions, that would be a red flag <laughs> in terms of your captive regulator. I think it's important that captive regulators, you know, are on top of it and are asking the right questions to kind of help you through that process, right? You don't want just someone waving something through and saying, yeah, all, all good, let's go. I think you want <laughs> the regulators to be kind of paying attention. Is that fair, do you think, Janae? You oh, probably yeah. don't want someone just to <laughs> say yes to everything. Yeah, that's what we were. That's why we were so happy to engage in the conversation with why they're very curious, had a lot of questions and want to understand it, which also made us feel like, okay, good. <laughs> we definitely want to do it here. Well, and I think that's exactly why the Delaware legislature put this this check in, you know, that there would be that third party that's engaging and reviewing these structures and it should give directors more comfort than a company just completely self-insuring. Yeah, absolutely. So lastly, then, what profile, I guess, Laurie, do, do you think, what profile of corporates do you expect this solution to to be relevant for? Are you already talking to others considering something similar? Yeah. I mean, the ideal candidates here are probably already self-insuring most of their risk. You know, they're buying an A-side tower and they think it's too expensive and, and they'd like to, to buy less of that. So they need to have a very strong balance sheet, obviously, as we've talked about. You know, we're talking about funding 100% of the limit and keeping it tied up for multiple years. So they need to have a long-term mindset. You know, there probably is also another market for companies that can't get traditional insurance, you know, think really tough industries, cannabis, crypto, I don't know, you know, 
all that happened in the crypto markets recently. I think those are really challenging spaces. And so you might see companies explore it there. The problem is if they don't have the balance sheet to go along with it and tie up those assets, I'm not sure it's such a great solution, but it might be better than nothing in some cases. And then obviously you need the sophistication or the resources to set up a captive. Although I think there are simpler ways to access captives from other sources. But that point we made earlier, I think it's really important that the captive assets are separated, whether that's a a distinct captive or a separate cell, to give the directors comfort that the captive assets can't be depleted by claims activity from something else. So I think the sky's the limit on this. For me, managing that uncertainty related to capacity and continuity of coverage and coverage sustainability is the most important reason to have a captive option ready for for use. Setting it up with the regulator, getting the policy uh, in place that you want to be able to provide at any given point in your DNO journey, to me, is one of the most important reasons to do this. But companies can use it if they want to provide additional capacity for relatively little cost. You can fill problematic layers in your existing programs, or you can take more risk into your captive just because you want to. Uh, So that flexibility is just really nice to have. The other reason to do it, of course, is to be prepared when the next really hard market strikes, because we all know that it will. That's a good point. Right. Is, is the, when that next hard market come and getting prepared for it. So we mentioned earlier, the first question was what the market conditions are. And we're seeing that market come down and flatten. But this might be the best time to set up an option for your captive down the road. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo all of that as well. I mean, the amount of stories I've heard from people that they, they looked at doing a captive five years ago, maybe not in the DNO context, but in the broader context, looked at doing a captive five years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, decided, nah, insurance is pretty cheap, it's pretty affordable. And then three years later, when the hard market hit, they definitely regretted it. And they just set up a captive in the, in the last year or the last six months. And <laughs> I've seen a lot of those instances. And in terms of DNO specifically, we had um, Lufthansa on the podcast last year, and they they kind of had done a lot of the work, Janae, that you were talking about there in terms of getting ready. Yeah. The renewal went okay for them they didn't have to use the captive but the captive was on standby and ready to go for some parts of their dno so it's just about as you say being prepared yeah doesn't it just make you feel better knowing you have an option it would for me Well, thank you to Janae's, Laurie and Nick for that fascinating discussion and especially to Janae's and Meta for being so generous as to allow us to tell that story. As I hope many of our listeners have seen already, we at Global Captive Podcast have now launched CaptiveIntelligence.io, a new news and analysis platform dedicated to providing quality insights into the global captive insurance market. And, and that story there from Meta is a really good example of the kind of stuff we want to cover on the site. We have written up this podcast as a long read on the website, and there is lots more great content to explore. Just visit captiveintelligence.io. It is also the new home of the Global Captive Podcast, although you will continue to find us on all major podcast platforms. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.